the next generation of leadership is upon us. With purpose, work-life balance and mission-driven organizations increasingly important for high potential talent. Today on the podcast, we're joined by Adam Kingle, a globally renowned expert in innovating management practice and strategy and an authority on generational paradigms in the workforce to discuss the actions leaders can take to confront this new reality and how leadership as we know it could be changing forever. So I'm delighted today to be joined on the IMI Talking Leadership podcast by Adam Kingle. Adam, how are you today? I'm really well. How are you? Great. Yeah, really, really good. We were just uh, discussing there off air the, the weather in various places. As we say, spring is kind of uh, coming in slowly but surely, but hasn't quite arrived yet. Uh, but, don't get me started. Yeah. But Adam, your session uh, with us um, recently was really fantastic and, and, you know, kind of brought up a lot of very interesting questions, I think, for, for the leaders in attendance around this whole idea of next generation leadership. What does that mean? And, you know, I suppose what actions can be taken to, to address that? I just thought I'd ask you, first of all, by looking at kind of the Irish context, and indeed this is reflected in other places as well, that CEOs are pointing to talent retention and succession as really key priorities. With younger generations kind of changing this conversation fundamentally around preferences, is there, does there have to be an acceptance in some way of a more fluid labor market? And this is something that leaders have to just get used to, do you think? Uh, yeah, I, I really do think there has to be an acceptance that we're in a new normal. Um, you know, trying to uh, trying to assume that somehow we can change the labor market by telling them how, how what kind of careers they want strikes me, uh, you know, as a, as an exercise um, in in uh, impossibility. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's 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 like the Emperor Caligula going to war with the sea. It's like you can't you can't do that. So you know, we know that uh, the youngest generation in the workforce, Gen Ys, Millennials, you know, w- want to um, want to change actually roles with uh, with uh, rapidity that Gen Xs and Baby Boomers didn't see. You 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 can't cajole them or shame them into changing that. In fact, if you do the latter, probably the most likely scenario you get is people leaving with even greater frequency. Um, So, (laughs) and and, you know, when when I, when I give a talk much like I did, you know, with, with IMI earlier, uh, sometimes I'm speaking solely to an HR audience and I have to tell them, you know, in some ways, and I don't mean this, you know, in a, in a, I don't mean to beat anyone, you know, about the head here, but in a way it's your fault. But what I mean by that, and I'm trying to say that in the nicest way possible, is that organizations have created the context that Gen Ys are reacting to. So if you think, well, if, if, if there has been a fundamental shift in how people think about careers and how long they want to stay with an employer, we have to look at whether employers have created an environment over the last few decades where, which makes the desirability of staying less. Surely that's the, that's the fundamental reason. So, to, so, so sort of like to accuse <laughs> the victim of organizational you know, uh, sadness is, is really not going to be the, the answer. Definitely. And I suppose as we kind of look forward then, um, you know, keeping this new context in mind, what do you think are some concrete actions that leaders can t- take to retain these, their most talented people who, of course, will be the most in demand and sought after in the market anyway? 
Um, if we look at kind of individual actions that leaders can take, and maybe as you as you mentioned there, on a more organizational level as well. Yeah, well, we we know that. I mean, right now we are in a you know a seller's market. Sellers being the talent, you know, so that they because there are so many vacancies around the world, but particularly in Europe and in North America, you know, you it, it, we we first have to recognize that you know people have choices people have options that's just going to be an inevitability so hopefully we can convince people through our actions not our words to stay for more than a couple of years which actually is becoming the average but it's probably not going to sh- we can't shift that to forever we can probably shift that to 6 years 8 years if we're really really good but let's just get rid of the concept of the old concept of like the IBM man, right? The person who joins a company and, and then you're with that company for life. I think that's that's becoming so rare, it almost isn't even worth having the conversation anymore about what that model looks like. That problem even exists, by the way, in professional services firms um, who ha- and law firms who have a partnership model, the very model of which assumes that you're going to be there for life. And even they are struggling convincing people to stay. Those who are on a partner track, you're like, well, why would you leave? You're on a partner track. And even they are struggling to keep people. So, so as I say, let's, let's just, let's just, you know, note that a job for life or employer for life is, is dead. And by the way, the employers have as much to blame for that as anyone, but let's come back to, so what can employers do? Well, I think there are kind of four main things that people can do and note that almost everything I'm going to talk about is free or inexpensive. One is development opportunities. And yes, this could be like a program, executive education, et cetera, but it can also be things which you can do just on the job, in situ, as part of one's day-to-day, be it tutoring, uh, having, a, having a mentor, having a coach, doing an international um, placement, doing a secondment, doing job rotations, um, be working on a more senior project or working with more senior customers, clients, or colleagues. All of that is development, but it's up to the employer to name that as such, you know, to say, we're giving you this project so that you can work on these things or work with these people as development, because then we know you can work on these things that in these areas in which you said you want to develop. Sometimes, you know, we give people what are actually very legitimate part of the job development opportunities, but we never, we never say it. And so the, so the employee never recognizes it. And then they leave and we think, oh, we give them so many opportunities. Well, yeah, but you have to label them sometimes. Make it easy for everyone you know, to, to, to acknowledge that. That's one, development opportunities. Second is culture. We have to, and, and that really is incumbent on line managers to do a much better job. And not, it's, it's not, I'm not talking employer value proposition because that's too nebulous. And if you work for an organization that has hundreds, hundreds or thousands of employees or tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of employees, clearly the culture of that organization can be experienced dramatically differently in different countries, regions, departments, and pockets and teams in those companies. So it's up to the line managers to create the culture that has some engagement, some adherence, some friendships in it. And that, so therefore, I think, you know, rather than create some employer value proposition and hire a very expensive consulting communications company to, you know, really work with your line managers to create, well, what is the aligned culture? What are the shared behaviors that we want to have in every team and hold line managers accountable to that? 
not their team, like we'll punish the team because they're leaving or they're saying they're disengaged. Talk to the line manager. You are accountable for creating an environment where people feel engaged. So that's second, culture. Third, work-life balance. We know how important that is, and, and COVID has just accentuated the, the importance of work-life balance. The, the problem, though, is that when, when we started working from home, we thought at first, well, now we're going to be able to have much better work-life balance because I'm home. I can you know, take this two hours off and walk the dog or play with the kids. But actually, kind of the reverse happened, and there was no boundaries between work and life, and we had no decompression time in the commute home from work. And, and you can't turn off your emails or the phone because everyone knows you're working from home. And so they assume you're always on. And so organizations have to do a much better job of creating boundaries. That's again up to line managers probably to, to do, but also the organization, what is culturally appropriate and, and giving people permission to turn off, but also understand what we're talking about when we say work-life balance. So when people come to us and say, I want a work-life balance conversation, one thing I learned in my research is that people don't understand what that means or, or, not, or they're more, more accurately, they, it means different things to different people. So there's semantic discord among the generations. They actually have different working definitions of work-life balance. So people need to be very clear about, well, what do you mean? What do you mean when you say in your context that you, you want work-life balance? Are you talking about where you work? Are you talking about how many hours you work? Are you talking about you know, wanting to work um, start at seven and finish at three or start at 11 and finish at seven? What do you mean? Let's make sure we all talk about the same thing. Gen Y has a very... Uh, has this reputation that I, we've all heard for being lazy. That's not true at all, actually. Not true at all. But I think what's happened is organizations say, oh, they all want work-life balance, and they immediately assume that means they want to work like three hours a day. And so they're lazy. But that's not at all. You know, I interviewed hundreds of Gen Ys, and what they say is, no, 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 we know that, you know, it's, it's particularly when you're younger, there might be this expectation, you're paying your dues, et cetera. But there's lots of other ways in which you can make work more palatable and fitted in around with life. So work-life balance is incredibly important. And then the final thing is, of course, purpose. That's the fourth pillar, the fourth leg of the table. Organizations have to have a clear, lived sense of purpose. The key word, of course, is lived. Again, doesn't matter how nice it sounds. If people can't recognize that purpose in the day-to-day -day working in the organization and how the brand is expressed and, and experienced by your market, be that customers, clients, whomever, if, if, if none of that is authentic, then they're just words. It doesn't mean anything. But if you have a strong lived sense of purpose, that's first, that's key. Second is it's important that the organization helps its people be able to understand what, what is the thread between their personal purpose and the collective purpose of the organization. So if I'm an employee for your company, I have to understand how what I do every day contributes to the collective purpose. And I have to understand how the collective purpose helps me achieve my personal purpose. You have to have that dialogue explicitly. How many organizations do that? Very, very, mm. very few. But you know, my own research says that's the number one thing that Gen Ys want, expect from their CEOs. It's also, by the way, there's a separate research from my own. Princeton University did some research. They found 85% of young people say that's the number one thing they look for in an employer is a strong lived sense of purpose, meaning in, in, in the company and in their job. And one of the things you also mentioned there is around the idea, obviously, about work-life balance. 
uh, and having kind of, you know, joining organizations that have that clear mission in mind. When the people, these young people who are taking up these roles ascend into leadership roles as they will over time, and we see this shifting demographic kind of play out, um, how do you see the role of the leader as we define it now changing? Yeah. Yeah, I think it is shifting seismically, fundamentally. And, you know, at first we could get away with pushing this very question you've asked down the line because we could say, well, Gen Ys, you know, they're graduates, they're youngsters that, you know, we can sort of bully them about and ignore their needs. But, you know, Gen Y are now uh, over half the global workforce. And in three years, they will be 75% of the global workforce. So they are, if in most companies, they are the largest segment. They are your, your employees. But second, yeah, they're growing. In the, the, the ratio is growing, partly because baby boomers are, are retiring at, at sort of an equal rapid rate. Um, so really, we're becoming a workforce of Gen Xs and Gen Ys. And Gen Z, of course, is just around the corner. And so purpose is, is what we expect from, from our leaders in the future, you know, have a strong lived sense of purpose and leaders being explicit about their purpose, not just the purpose of the organization, but your CEO saying, this is why I choose to work. And this is why I choose to work here instead of anywhere else. And this is how I'm going to help all of us contribute to our purpose and provide meaning. But the, and, and what that implies is that there's this other shift, fundamental shift that society expects more from businesses than to maximize return to shareholders. If you asked any business school, and particularly the finance department of a business school 20 years ago, what is the purpose of business? 99% of those professors would tell you the only point of business is to maximize return to shareholders. That's it, that's capitalism. Well, capitalism itself is evolving. And capitalism in the 21st century, even expressed in its strongest, you know, most capitalistic sense, which is the kind of Anglo-Saxon uh, expression, is that actually, no, society expects more from the estate of commerce, that it plays a role in solving some of society's most intractable problems, be it poverty, be it climate change, um, be it mental health. You might think this has nothing to do with you, fair company, but guess what? It does now, whether you like it or not. So again, we can't just rail against the world and say, oh, that's not the world of work that I joined. This isn't fair. I, you know, I can't do anything about this. Well, you can and you must. And part of this, of course, is corporates working in, in partnership with, with the public sector, but not only that. And it has to be more than paying lip service to it you know it's got to be more than oh well we sponsored you know we bought football jerseys for our local youth club well that's great i'm not you know but but of course the the impact of that is uh is not what i'm talking about here i'm talking about much more fundamental problems that we have to solve and of course we even see this writ large um in sectors of society you know I, when i look to new zealand and uh you know uh you know everyone loves the, their, their, um, their prime minister. But, you know, if I look at her cabinet, um, Grant Robertson is her finance minister. And even he has said, he's the, he's the finance minister, let me reiterate. And he said, GDP is not enough. If I look at my KPIs, the GDP of New Zealand is insufficient. I have to look at mental health. Um, I have to look at, you know, domestic and sexual violence. I have to look at child hunger. I have to look at climate change. Because if the finance 
ministry of New Zealand isn't looking at these things, then that assumes that in our society, there's a trade-off between economic surplus and these issues, whereas, of course, they have to work in concert with each other. And we know that in the corporate sector and looking at like investments, wealth management, asset management, these things are positively correlated. If you look at ethical equity funds, they have done better than almost any other sector uh, over the last several years. So if I invested, I live in the UK right now. If I invest in, in my pension, my pension fund as uh, the university superannuation scheme, which is the largest private pension fund in the UK. And if I look at the defined contribution portion of my pension, right, the pots of different um, funds, mutual funds, right, that you, I can put my money in. If I looked at over the last few years, the equity, UK equity fund, world equity fund, and ethical equity fund, the returns of those are as follows. UK equity, 4%. World equity is like 7%. Ethical equity, 15%. Now, only a few years ago, if I told you, you know, we need to put more money into, into ethical organizations, we need to invest more in ethical equities, we need to make sure that company mission also involves um, ESG and triple bottom line, a lot of people would have told me, yes, but there's a trade-off, isn't there? You're sacrificing margin, you're sacrificing profitability, et cetera, et cetera. We know now that is not true. They are, in, they, they are not inversely correlated, they're positively correlated. That's really powerful. If you're getting pushback in your company, you who are listening to this podcast right now, um, there's a lot of recent research and it is more recent research. So I'm not surprised that a lot of people aren't yet sort of on board with this, but there is compelling, overwhelming research indicating there that, that these things work in concert with one another. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's a fascinating topic because yeah, you're even seeing, as you say, kind of, I suppose the expectations are evolving to the extent now that if businesses or say pension funds, for example, if they don't offer an ESG fund or, you know, fund that's mainly based in kind of ESG companies or whatever the case may be, there's kind of a, hmm, this, this yeah. raises, raises an eyebrow and it's, um, yeah, it's, it's a fascinating thing to look at. And you mentioned a, a really nice term uh, during your session, which is these so-called firms of endearment. Mm. Um, and yeah, you mentioned just there that they've been extremely successful in terms of from a bottom line perspective. Um, would you be able to share a couple of examples of organizations um, in that regard? Sure. Well, let me just, I mean, let me just talk just that share that statistic from uh, Firms of Endearment is a book uh, that was written over about 10 years ago. And they looked at companies that had a strong, strong lived sense of purpose and vision, mission, et cetera, values. And they found that those organizations that had those things outperformed the market by a factor of 10 over 10 years. So if I invested in just the market or invested in all of their competitive set in their industry, you know, I would have one return on my, I would have X return in my investment. But if I invested just in those firms of endearment, I would have 10X return in my investment. That's huge, 10X. Um, that's a massive improvement. Um, so if I'm only looking at the filthy lucre, right, and just thinking about, I still am motivated to invest in ethical equity funds uh, or ethical equity companies, these, these firms of endearment that focus on ESG and strong lived values. Okay, so that's one. Second, if we look at those organizations that have that 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 are doing this, I mean, there. I mean, there are many actually. I'm pleased to say that there are many out there that are really starting to maneuver in these areas. One is Unilever. You know, huge 
FMCG company, consumer goods company. Um, you know, and they said, for example, their, their former CEO, Paul Pullman, famously said a few years ago to the market, to the analyst community, I am not going to do quarterly forecasts anymore. Not gonna, what do you mean not going to do? Everyone does quarterly. We're a publicly traded company. Well, Unilever, neither Unilever nor Paul Pullman were obliged. There's no, there was no regulation that said they had to issue quarterly forecasts. So that's one. And two, he said, by forcing me to give you quarterly forecasts, you're forcing me to think only in three-month increments. I can't think strategically. I can't think about how do I pivot the company towards solving things like helping to solve things like climate change, et cetera. I can't do that in three months. So, you know, he was giving him, him and his organization the space to do that. Um, plus, of course, it's not just incumbent on him. So leaders in Unilever, as one of their KPIs is how are you contributing to sustainability? You know, so, uh, so it is there that they are in every way materially motivated to contribute um, to that. So that's one. I think another it, it, a very, very different company is Heineken, the Dutch brewery, right? And how much they focus on making sure that they are about not just sociability, but ethical sociability. So they were one of the very first before many beer companies, for example, were having a drink responsibly campaign. You know, they were ahead of the curve on that. But also they were very careful about looking about how their brand is, is, is used, what things they sponsor, and making sure that they are only putting their name on things that matter, not just, you know, the cheapest, you know, sponsorship deal we can get for maximum impact or, or, or something, something like that. You know, obviously there are many more out there, but but uh, but it's it's not. Sometimes people say, well, only a, a little, you know, agile company can folk can do things like ESG and triple bottom line because they can afford to because they're they're young and foolish and they'll grow up and they'll lose yeah. those values. That is not true at all. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. It takes yeah, it takes both ends of the spectrum or indeed all all parts of it. Yeah, to actually uh, begin pulling in in a new direction. Um, Adam, one of the really interesting things, and even just looking at the news is something that I'm quite interested in um, as I kind of scan news websites is, you know, this increasing, I suppose, uh, momentum behind um, shortened work weeks or redefined working weeks, um, particularly in places like Iceland and, you know, countries like that where proper kind of studies have been done. So as the kind of younger generation begins to make their mark on how we define work, uh, do you see a fundamental restructuring taking place? Or do you think that we're kind of set enough in the ways that we're in right now that it's maybe yeah. unlikely? No, I do see I do see a fundamental shift. Absolutely. So as you say, Iceland is experimenting with the three-day weekend. Sweden has experienced has uh, has experimented with the three-day weekend. The UK right now, I think there are 60 six zero companies. I just saw this in the press. 60 companies are trying this for I think six months. Interesting. Um, we also know just in terms of working from home, you know, we know that pre-COVID lockdown, a lot of companies, a lot of companies were saying. We won't do working from home. We won't, we won't make that you know, part of our permanent policy because we know that we will lose productivity in our people. And then COVID happened and those, those companies and every other company were forced to uh, have everyone or most people work from home. Of course, it depends on the industry you know, and the function, et cetera, but a lot more people working from home. And then there was a study both in the UK and in the US 
um, asking companies to report back on the productivity of their people. And overwhelmingly, the answer was our people are equally or more productive in lockdown than they were pre-lockdown. So we have to, you know, that's we have to put that to bed. That concept that if people work from home, they are somehow less productive—that is not true. And the other thing we have to put to bed for, at last is FaceTime culture. The idea of you, know, you have to go into the office just to show your face, or not leave until the boss leaves, etc. And I fully acknowledge that there are times when it's helpful to have some colleagues in the office. If you're doing, doing maybe a creative brainstorming session, uh, having a strategic, you know, like away day, things like that. But even then. I think it's useful to have some prefacatory virtual conversations before those begin so that you don't get everyone together and then ask questions for the first time, giving no one an opportunity beforehand to think about it. And everyone stares at themselves and the wall and thoughtfully picks their nose and considers how they're going to answer and not embarrass themselves. So, so I think that's – so I, I would not be surprised if in the next 10 years – Many companies, how do I define many? It's hard to say, but let's say one in four companies have as permanent policy a three-day weekend, if not more. Because you know the early results are in already from Sweden, from Iceland, and that uh, it's working. Mm-hmm. It's working. Switzerland is another one, I think, that's in some parts of Switzerland are experimenting with a three-day, three-day weekend. And by the way, before we say, well, the, week, you know, the, the two-day weekend is like something we have lived with for eternity. That's not true. The concept of the weekend was invented in the Industrial Revolution. Um, you know, before the Industrial Revolution, most organizations were composed of, you know, one to three people. It was like the blacksmith, his apprentice, and you know, <laughs> yeah, maybe yeah. you know, and a child and another child or something like that. Right? That was a company, um, and so they didn't even have a weekend per se. I guess Sunday, you know, in in Christian uh, lands, you know, but they pretty much you know worked, um, but but also took time off whenever, like when they got sick, when they wanted a rest, then you close the shop. And, and it was only in the Industrial Revolution and particularly the advent of labor unions that the idea of a, of a five-day work week became de rigueur and kind of the, the normal. So, and yes, that's, that's, so now that's existed for quite a few years, you know, uh, over 100 years, but it's not an eternal concept. And just as I think the way we work is fundamentally shifting right now because of lots of reasons. COVID lockdown was a big accelerator, but the digitalization of communications, the, as I said, this shift in in what the purposes of organizations, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. I think absolutely now it's time for us to consider, well, what, what is work? What is a work day? What is a weekend, et cetera. Um, You know, the UAE, just very recently, at the end of, of last calendar year, in December, they announced for their entire country, right, the whole society, not only did they change their weekend from uh, uh, Friday, Saturday to Saturday, Sunday to align with, um, uh, well, with the West, but they also said Fridays are half days. So, yes, Friday is now work day, but that's their holy day. It's like our Sunday, right, in the Christian world, but they, they finish work at lunchtime on Friday. So now now they're the country is on a four and a half day work week. So if a whole country can do that practically overnight, like with one month's notice, I would say surely over a few years, we can expect the concept of the weekend and how long a weekend is to fundamentally shift in in Europe, you know, uh, and, and I think that will happen sooner than we think. 
Mm. And I suppose, Adam, just to finish up, uh, building off what you just said there in relation to these trends that we're seeing, the changing trends over, say, the next 10 years, are there any other, if you can, if you have your crystal ball handy, you can pull it out there. Are there any other trends that you see over the next 10 years that leaders have to kind of keep on their radar in this, in this kind of space? Yeah, so I'm looking at my ball right now. The, the, the mists are swirling. Oh, yes. OK, I've, I picked something out. It's um, I, I think it has to do with the gig economy. At first, when we say gig economy, we thought that meant like delivery, you know, pizza delivery people uh, and like couriers and things like that and, and, and Uber drivers. And, and that was maybe the gig economy for a long time. But now more and more people want that complete flexibility for how they how they spend their time professionally, when they spend it and who they spend it with. And you have more, of course, you have more optionality when you're in the gig economy. But again, this is not just delivery. Like a lot of people, you know, a lot of people out there are project managers. More and more of the world's work is organized in projects. And that implies that organizations to manage those projects maybe need to consider bringing in man people to manage those projects on a project by project basis rather than as employees. Um, so I think that's a huge shift. So, you know, when I, I, I've talked about, um, you know, when I talk about the number of employers one has in a lifetime, I've shared for Gen Z, for example, it might be 32 employers in a lifetime and everyone looks at me horrified. And I say, well, I say employer, but it isn't always employer. A lot of these people will be, pro you know, will be in the project or gig economy. So yes, of course, they'll have 32, probably even more companies they work with over the course of their careers, but those will probably be on a contract basis rather than an employee contract basis, or you know, it'll be a project contract instead of an employee employer contract. Um, so that's one. And I think employers have to be a lot more relaxed about bringing people in on a project basis and also having a pool of contributors, mm -hmm. you know, that you can bring in on an as need basis. Um, you know, a lot of people assume, well, everyone wants the security of a full-time job. Well, I think that's changing. And yeah. I think, a lot, you know, not always, of course. So, so I certainly will admit what I'm about to say is not true across the board, but a lot of people who work in the gig economy, more senior people, so I'm not talking about, you know, delivery people and things like that, but a lot of people who are um, maybe more experienced professionals who are working for themselves are saying, you know what, also I, I, I earn more money doing it that way as well. So, so people say, well, I want the security of a salary, but, but actually <laughs> you might even do better for yourself and your family by by working in the gig. Yes, you have that that extra risk and you got to hustle to 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 win your projects. But a lot of people actually are embracing that. So I think that's a huge shift that employers have to be comfortable with and they have to start asking themselves, so what are the roles in the organization for which we have to have full-time employees? And these could be because it's essential to the brand. You know, it's essential for regulatory purposes. It's essential for R&D, for example. That might be a reason why you want that really to be kept very close to your chest. But a lot of, but there are a lot of functions in the organization where you probably don't need employees to do that, either because they're sporadic or intermittent, or they have very definitive start and finish times, etc. I talk about this in, in, in my book, Next Generation Leadership, that you know, organizations increasingly have to consider, define their workforce as employees and contractors, and think of that as this is your ecosystem. 
rather than we have employees. And every now and then we bring in a person to do X, you know, to restock the shelves once a year or whatever. Well, I, th I, th I think we do have to think more fundamentally than that. Fantastic, Adam. Uh, thank you so much. Really appreciate your time today. Thank you so much. Pleasure.